Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend, to me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is December 13th, 2018, and this is episode 116. Politicoast is the BC Politics Podcast. Tell us what you think of the show by leaving us a review or get at us on social media. Most importantly, help us build the show by throwing us a couple bucks a month at patreon.com slash politicoast. I'm Scott Delainboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. As always, our intro music is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikov. I've stopped saying Facebook in the intro because they're evil. <laughs> I mean, we're on Facebook, but no one really follows us there. And so I'm just kind of prioritizing things that aren't evil. I want to say like Patreon because they give us money. Or Twitter. Well, Twitter is Twitter, obviously evil. <laughs> so, I mean, we're there, but we're also on Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. So you can't get away from it. But on today's show... We're not on Snapchat. No, we're not going to be on Snapchat. <laughs> we're too old. Uh, we're, we're on that borderline, or at least I'm on that borderline of elder millennial, but I don't think I quite qualify. I was having this debate with someone on by DMs today. But today's show, getting on track maybe... The ongoing legislative drama, the Clean BC plan with a special guest, and we get into the Huawei kerfuffle, and we follow it up with a grab bag of quick takes. As always, Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishCumbiaToday.ca. And if you don't even want to sign up for British Columbia Today's free trial, you can check out Shannon's really good story on women and proportional representation, where she interviews a number of BC politicians from all three major parties and Marina Dobryshenka, I forget exactly how to pronounce her name, from the Broadband Institute, who all talk about the place of women in BC politics and It's a really interesting deep dive, and so I'll throw a link to that in the show notes, and that is your only free BC Today content, but it gives you a sense of the level of writing you'll expect if you sign up. Let's kick it off with our first segment, Audits in the House. The start of last week's episode that you weren't around for, where I had this interview with Bo and Ma, I put in a clip from the last week's Lamsey meeting that just went off the rails. Did you get a chance to listen to that? I, I, I did catch a bit of the uh, audio from Lampsy, and yeah, it is something that's probably the most off-the-rails legislative committee meeting there has been in quite some time. And it's like the most boring committee, the Legislative Affairs Management Committee, Legislative Assembly Management Committee. It's basically just the internal, you know, how do things work, Are we spending enough money on staplers kind of committee? And here you have Daryl Plekis screaming about his authority to conduct internal secret investigations, his desire for audits of not just the clerk and sergeant at arms offices, but his office and the disgust this will cause by the, to the people of British Columbia will cause them to be in the streets and throw up and all kinds of other things. And if they aren't throwing up, he will resign over that. (laughs) Which is a bold statement for someone who seems to have now burned all bridges. 
the other half of his statement, he really starts going to bat for his friend Mullen, who he talks about how he is going to be heralded essentially as a hero and people will be singing his name in the streets once all of this comes out. And I think that may have been a bit exaggerated. A certain amount of the Plectus rhetoric got turned up to 11 here in a way that I don't think was helpful to anyone. I do feel bad because as I was listening, he made some comments about the authority he has to go about this committee. And so I tweeted out a gif of like He-Man holding up the sword saying, I have the power. And then like two minutes later, he said, I haven't made a cartoon character. (laughs) And so I'm the asshole now. Well, I, if I was left tweeting, I may have done with the Cartman respect my authority, one which would have been worse. But it's just this weird situation where you have the NDP on the one side trying to stonewall everything, trying to say, let's let the police do cop stuff and tell us what they find. You have Wally Opal saying the same thing, because that's what Wally Opal does. That's why you hire him, is to say no comment. And then you have Plekis saying he has a laundry list of concerns and issues. You have the Greens siding with the NDP. And then you have the Liberals saying this is all partisan hackery, just the NDP trying to preserve its power. They also hate Plekis, but that's not at play here. They're totally saying, and they're trying not to interrupt. Does anyone have credibility, though? Uh, No no one's looked great. And I think the initial, everybody just going along with the initial recommendations to put uh, Gary Lenz and Fred James on leave, when it turned out there were some questions that probably should have been asked at the time and nobody asked them, nobody came out looking great at this. And the kind of two quote-unquote sides of this have responded in different ways with the NDP and Dreams kind of doubling down on, no, this was the right decision. And the liberal saying, yeah, wait a minute, we should... We should have probably asked this stuff. Whoops, are bad, or kind of that. And then actually then trying to get those questions out in the open on, okay, just what exactly is going on? And it's, and I think Wilkinson said something along the lines if they'd assumed the um, government had done their due diligence on this one. And, well, now they're not so sure of that. And, I mean, I, I think the liberals screwed up the early part of it, and they've... Yeah, definitely let some of their dislike of Plekis kind of bleed into this a bit, but like, they also have some fair points that like the people of British Columbia kind of should know a bit about what what's going on in their legislature, and you know this has become a big enough issue, and there's been enough questions raised around why did Daryl Plekis do launch this investigation? Why are these two people being suspended without any indication of what they've done and any of that stuff? And I, I think this has reached the point where, you know, an explanation of at least some degree, you know, not the full, you know, thing, because there is an active police investigation, but more than we have now, I think the public actually deserves to know. And the liberals are right on pushing for that to be out. Yeah, I was listening to the new In the House, I think it's called podcast, which is from the province and it's with Mike Smith or Smitty, as he's called on there, and Rob Shaw, who are getting back into the podcast game. I guess they were doing this like four or five years ago, and then they stopped, then we came along. and Yeah, Post Media seems to do like little spurts of podcasting. (laughs) But they're around, and they were talking about this story and how, yeah, the liberals are asking honestly decent questions on the file. 
but the problem is they don't have much credibility given the number of scandals that went on under their watch and this like deep-seated hatred that it's like also if Plekis is implying something is amiss in the speaker's office for years that implicates Linda Reed and previous liberal speakers and what might that in- uncover or maybe he is just trying to say I'm above board but the clerk and sergeant at arms offices aren't like the whole any- thing's weird and yeah anything that's longer than 18 months implicates the liberals in some way but you know they have no idea what it could be because nobody's given any indication of what it is and you know, um, Mary Polak who's the opposition house leader she was the one leading the question into the Lampsey meeting and she had some uh, good questions about you know Daryl Plectus was saying that oh, we'll have a bunch more information in the new year next meeting and kind of asking well if you can release it in a month from now why can't you release it now and, and there's a bunch of like solid cross-examination basically on this that we never got a good answer from Pletus on. Well, and there was another meeting of a finance committee that's a subcommittee of Lamsey today or yesterday that sounds like nothing came out of. They mostly went in camera. There'll be another Lamsey meeting next week where I don't think we're going to learn anything. But Plekis seems to be hinting that his laundry list might come out in January and... Maybe but, these audits will also happen then, which is great for content. Yeah, it's great for content. I mean, is the police investigation going to wrap up by then? I mean, these things tend to last a while. And if it's not going to wrap up shortly into the new year, then is the, well, we can't release it because of an active police investigation reason actually legitimate? I don't know. I don't know really <laughs> anything. No, I know. None of us do. But, that, but that's the problem. It's like, it's. There's fireworks in what should be the most boring committee in the house that nobody can really say anything about it or is willing to say anything about it. Well, I guess over the holiday break, we'll keep speculating. Plekis seemed to maybe suggest financial difficulties, and that's why you'd go to an audit, but I could still also see it being something to do with personal human resource harassment or worst type issues i, I have knows, heard the but... theory that that's why there were two special prosecutors brought in is because it's really two separate issues oh it could be everything everything you can imagine is happening in this clerk's office yeah but it still seems weird yeah all right we'll keep the speculation going and we'll come back to this in the new year because unless something diabolical happens we probably won't touch on it next week Last week, the government of BC released the Clean BC Plan. There, for some of the preliminary announcements, was Dan Vinalovich, Policy Director at Clean Energy Canada. Dan, welcome back to Politicoast. Great to be with you guys again. So one of the major themes of this Clean BC report is that the entire province essentially needs to be electrified. That is, move us from fossil fuels to electricity wherever possible, because then we can make take advantage of the green energy that this province has, hydro solar, maybe not as much, wind, etc. Beyond that kind of top level, what exactly does electrifying BC mean? Like how much electricity are we talking about? Well, in the in the Clean BC plan, the government has estimated that uh, the additional measures that they're proposing to electrify more of our heat, our vehicles, and more of our industries, that that would be about 4,000 gigawatt hours. So you know, to put that in context, that's about 80% of uh, the capacity of, of Site C. So 
it's not an insignificant amount, but it's also considerably less than some of the other projections that have come out from, from other organizations over the past several years. One reason for that is they're also factoring in considerable efforts that they're making towards energy efficiency and actually using less energy overall, uh, which can reduce the amount of additional electricity capacity we'd need in the province in order to electrify. Uh, do you think that's going to actually happen or is this one of those cases where as we try and reduce electricity just more demand for it pops up somewhere else well the the devil is always going to be in the in the details and uh, i i would say that that number sounds perhaps a little bit conservative um, but i think they also didn't want to to put out a, a really big number that would suggest that either bc hydro is going to have to build a lot of additional capacity or they didn't want to necessarily signal to the private sector that there would be calls for power and and a lot of additional independent power projects until they figure out some more of the details until they undertake the the second phase of their review of bc hydro which they're they're calling a transformational review so i i think it's perhaps a little bit on the the conservative side but that said i i think many estimates of electrification overshoot uh, because they they presume that you know everybody would be plugging in their electric cars and charging at peak times, whereas you know the evidence we have from British Columbia and elsewhere is that you know most people plug in their cars and charge them overnight. So they're not doing it in the middle of the day. They're not doing it w- right when they get home. And we have more and more apps and software that allow us to very carefully plan when we use electricity and uh, if you have a utility that begins to price differentially based on when it's used, time of use pricing, then it's very easy to shift people's use and to, to manage the grid so that uh, you can be using a lot more electricity without necessarily having to build more capacity. Uh, time of use pricing's not worked into this, that's correct, right? That's correct. That's not something they've signaled with this. I think inevitably that is going to be a, a piece of the, the review of, of BC Hydro and, and the role that BC Hydro can play in helping electrify the province and, and electrify it at lowest cost to the ratepayer. You mentioned the amount of electricity we're looking at is 80% of Site C. With that coming online eventually, and I know they've already announced the last generators getting stuck in the Revelstoke Dam, Will we have enough electricity or are we going to be looking for a few more projects with the estimates they've made so far? So with the estimates so far, we have enough electricity. That said, uh, there are a couple things. One is I think we need to uh, likely refine those numbers in terms of projecting what the the likely demand would be. And the Clean BC plan also only gets us 75% of the way towards the 2030 greenhouse gas reduction targets. And it's possible that as we close that gap, that additional 25%, that further electrification would be part of that, in which case we would have to look at what's the incremental demand that would come with that. Uh, And so then it's possible that even before 2030, we might be requiring some additional capacity, uh, at at which point the province would have to decide, uh, are they going to task BC Hydro with that? Are they going to look to the private sector to deliver that? Uh, with run of river or wind or or geothermal. Uh, so those details are still to be fleshed out in the coming 18 to 24 months, which is the timeline that the government has provided for completing phase two of Clean BC. And then, of course, we've got the, the, the review of BC Hydro as well that'll be going on over the next year. Well, let's dig into that. What are some of the features that make this plan more unique and better than those 
other plans that you've talked about? So one piece of that is is the the overarching approach on electrification. And so really recognizing that that's a comparative advantage that BC has not only environmentally, but also economically, because as a source of energy, electricity is relatively cost effective. So really keying in on that and focusing on looking at all of the different ways that we can harness the electricity we have and the potential we have to, to generate more electricity in the province is unique relative to a, a lot of other plans. But beyond that, I think what makes this plan particularly comprehensive is that it didn't just focus on how do we reduce emissions. It also looked at how do we orient our economy and our workforce to be able to not only deliver those emission reductions, but to create economic opportunity associated with that. And to look at how can we actually achieve another one of the government's big objectives, which is enhancing affordability through the policies and programs that make up Clean BC. So really, the, it's the first plan I've seen that is that integrated in terms of looking at affordability, job creation, and emissions reduction. We've tended to have plans elsewhere in the country and previously in British Columbia that kind of exist in silos. So you might have an emissions reduction plan, and then you have a jobs plan, and then you have an affordability plan, and often there's conflicts between those plans. So this is the first one that I've seen that actually has stitched those two and, and integrated them uh, in a way that is, is very promising. Okay, well, let's talk about how that happens. I mean, one of the big challenges for British Columbia is both a lot of cars obviously still use fossil fuels, but so does a lot of home and industry heating. How do we get all of these single-family homes, apartment buildings factories, office buildings that are currently using natural gas or whatever over to electric heating, if that's what I'm assuming has to happen. I think we need to, to treat them somewhat separately. So when we're talking about buildings, so homes, businesses, there are you know two different streams that you have to, to address. One is your existing stock of buildings and the other is your new buildings, buildings that are still to be constructed. And so for the latter, uh, you can address that through through building codes. And so in BC, we have the energy step code, uh, which the government is now uh, advancing and saying, this is how things have to be built, whereas previously it was uh, more of a, a suggested approach to building as opposed to one that was actually going to be enforced. So that's really going to drive efficiency of buildings, both in terms of just the, the quality of construction and the insulation that goes into, into these buildings, but then also uh, how they produce their heat. So with a, a shift more towards uh, electric heat pumps. For our existing buildings, it, it's really a question of retrofits. And so the, the government has announced several rebate programs that are going to help reduce that barrier that homeowners or business owners face to laying out the capital to swap out a, an old gas furnace for a new electric heat pump. They've also signaled that they're going to be, presumably through the, the review of BC Hydro, looking at on-bill finance programs. So rather than an individual having to draw from their savings or take out a, a loan from their bank, they would be able to borrow money from their utility and then pay that off at a very low interest rate through their utility bills over time. So the, you know, essentially the increment that they're saving through a more efficient uh, electric heat pump that differential would go towards paying off the off the loan to install that heat pump in the first place. So that's really the, the path forward towards either retrofitting homes or building new homes that are going to be more efficient, more comfortable, and ultimately uh, more cost effective for, for homeowners. I think that's the 
the big piece that's often missed with this is, you know, these technologies, these solutions actually save consumers money. Right now, the, the hurdle is just making that initial capital investment to set yourself up to save those dollars over time. You know, that said, particularly when we look at the industrial side, not all operations are going to be able to switch over to electricity. And the government has acknowledged that. And that's where they have set, I would say, a fairly ambitious target for increasing the supply of, of renewable natural gas in the province. And there are two sources of renewable natural gas. One is uh, what we might traditionally think of as, you know, capturing methane from, from landfills or creating methane from forestry waste streams or agricultural waste streams. But they're also looking at how can they create hydrogen through electrolysis. So using our clean electricity to split water, separate out the hydrogen, blend that into, into the gas system. So essentially, how can we make the natural gas that we're using cleaner by blending in renewable natural gas and, and achieving the emissions benefit from that? I want to touch on briefly the new building code and whether or not that might have some unintended consequences and conflict with the government's other kind of big goals around affordability. Uh, in Here in Vancouver, construction costs have been going up quite significantly and at quite a rapid rate. Is there any concerns that this might hurt the uh, affordability of housing? I think that definitely comes up as a potential problem. And so, you know, there are going to be, I think, efforts to make sure that the incentives for doing better, building better, do not just apply to retrofits, but apply to, to new builds as well. Uh, you know, but the the other factor is, you know, for for builders, they have a lot of, of options in terms of how they design and, and build a house or a condo or an apartment, uh, you know, what kind of features they have in it. And the reality is that I, I think the building community can do a much better job of actually marketing to potential buyers the benefits of of buying, owning, and operating a more efficient residence. And so instead of, of focusing as much as they do often on uh, granite countertops and, and fancy lights, um, they can focus a little bit more as well on how, how can they make sure that, that their buyers are aware of the benefits of a, a more efficient, more comfortable, more cost-effective home. Uh, well, let's switch gears over to electric vehicles. Which won't have gears. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, that was unintentional. So one of the big bits of this and part of the electrification, is, and this was put out, I think, about a week or so before the full report was, is that the government's going to effectively ban vehicles that cause emissions for personal motor vehicles and light trucks. Is there concerns that this is going to be feasible in, say, the more rural parts of the province? Well, so they've, they've set that objective for 2040. So we've got a lot of a lot of lead time before that's going to become reality. And it applies to sales of vehicles, not what vehicles are on the road. So realistically, with vehicle turnover times, we're, we're looking at into the early 2050s before we might actually see, you know, the end of internal combustion engine vehicles on on roads in, in BC. So there's a lot of lead time. I think in the near term, we're going to continue to see the bulk of electric vehicles that are coming on the roads, coming on the roads in cities, uh, particularly in the lower mainland, southern Vancouver Island. And with the policy that the government is going to be putting in place, the, the zero emission vehicle standard that is going to set targets for sales of, of electric vehicles in the province, it's not something that is uh, imposed on individual dealerships. So if you're a dealership in Prince George, 
you don't all of a sudden have to start selling electric vehicles. It's going to be contingent on the car makers themselves deciding how they're going to allocate those vehicles in BC so that they can achieve those targets and make those sales. And so we're likely to see them allocating most of their supply to where there's been the most demand, which has been in uh, in the lower mainland and, and on Vancouver Island. When we look towards you know the mid to the longer term out towards 2040, in all likelihood, we're going to have a very diverse set of vehicle choices available to consumers. When we look at the, the, the electric vehicles that manufacturers are going to be putting on the roads over the next three to four years, nearly half of the new models that are coming on stream are, are SUVs. Uh, and we're seeing uh, a new race emerging amongst automakers to see who's going to be the first one to have you know a full-size, full-function pickup truck that's fully electric on the road. So, you know, the technology is evolving very quickly. We're seeing all of the major car manufacturers pivoting uh, very aggressively towards electric vehicles. So in all likelihood, the notion that we, we wouldn't have enough choice or we wouldn't have the vehicle types that we need for every type of driver across the, the province by 2040, um, it's really not something that I think anybody should be concerned about. My only other question on electric vehicles is just going back to the rural communities. I guess it's sort of two parts. Number one, is there plans to get the charging network sufficient to cover the entire province? And number two, are there concerns that these cars might not perform in cold? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's a, a common question. So first, on the, on the question of charging infrastructure, the real focus of investments in new charging infrastructure now has shifted away from, uh, you know, just making it available at shopping malls or recreation centers in urban BC and actually looking at ensuring that there's sufficient fast charging infrastructure on on BC's highways between cities and and towns uh, throughout the province. And so there's going to need to be a continued build out of that infrastructure for those British Columbians that, that do make longer trips. It's also important to remember that um, with each generation of, of electric vehicles that we're seeing come onto the market, their range is increasing significantly. So we're getting to the point where some models that are available are comparable to uh, a gas vehicle in, in terms of how far they can go on a, on a single charge. So that coupled with access to fast chargers uh, along highways should alleviate a lot of the concern that people might have about being able to get from point A to point B without without running out of, of charge or or having access to a place where they can they can fill up their battery. And and when it comes to cold, you know, it's a similar issue. Uh, with cold it's a function of obviously you're using more heat and so that can drain your battery faster. There are two points with that. One is obviously bigger batteries still give you that bigger range, which means when you're using heat, you're not eating into the, the, the distance that you can travel quite so much. The other is there's a lot of innovation uh, that's happening in terms of how best to heat an electric vehicle uh, and how to do so as efficiently as possible. So now there are also heat pumps for cars, so a very efficient way to, to, to produce that, uh, that heat in the car. They also tend to focus on things like seat heat, heating the, the side panels of the vehicle. So various ways that aren't just generating heat and then blowing it with fans. Um, so, you know, so much innovation happening there that, uh, you know, it's a concern that certainly comes about, uh, particularly in Canada, where we've got a lot of people who live in colder climates. But it's not something, again, that I think anybody should be too concerned about 
with the evolution of the technology and more and more choice of, of vehicles with longer and longer ranges coming onto the market. So let's just kind of zoom out a bit. How is this plan being received? I mean, you've talked about what it is, but is Clean Energy Canada happy? Yeah, we were certainly very pleased with it and, and view it as you know, a return to the, the leadership that we first saw uh, when Gordon Campbell was premier and he first brought in the, the first climate plan and the carbon tax um, under Premier Clark, we had a, a bit of a period of latency in terms of uh, doing anything that was going to further reduce emissions. And consequently, uh, emission reductions kind of leveled off and emissions actually started to creep up. So very positive to see a, a return to not only ambition, but solid policies that can deliver those reductions. And and this government has, has really benefited, I think, from two things. One is the cooperation and, and collaboration with uh, the BC Greens, who I think brought a lot of good ideas and definitely pushed the government to be as, as ambitious and as specific as possible in developing this plan. And then they also benefited from the fact that Premier Campbell put in place some of the, the foundational policies that now don't need to be recreated, but you just need to turn the dial on it. So things like the, the low carbon fuel standard that increases the supply of, of clean fuels for vehicles in the province. They're able to just turn the dial and say, okay, well, we need to produce more of that. And these these fuels need to be cleaner as opposed to starting from scratch and, and developing that that policy. And you know, to their credit, the government is being ambitious and they are being specific in terms of what their plans are. Uh, and, and as I said before, they're also looking at how can they really turn this to, to BC's advantage economically? So how can we actually brand and market products and resources that we're producing in BC as cleanest in the world? How can we market those uh, to the world in that way and take advantage of the, the growing number of uh, consumers and, and companies that are actually starting to pay a premium or preferentially look for low carbon clean products uh, in the world. And then they're also saying, how do we make sure we've got a workforce that has the right skills to be able to um, fill those jobs as they're created? So they're doing uh, labor market readiness assessments uh, across the board, and then that's going to inform what kind of um, programs or support they need to provide into BC's educational system. So, you know, that's it's an approach that we haven't seen elsewhere. And so we're, we're very impressed by that and, and very supportive of it. We really haven't seen all that that much reaction from outside of British Columbia yet. This kind of has has come on fairly quietly, federally, nationally. Uh, you know, most of the the oxygen is being consumed by the debate about uh, about the federal government's carbon tax and, and opposition to that coming from Saskatchewan and Ontario and and elsewhere. And so it feels as though right now BC's plan is is flying a little bit under the radar. Uh, but I think as as we get into 2019, I think that's going to change. And, and I think as more and more observers uh, look and see what BC has done, they'll have a similar reaction to you know what they had uh, when Premier Campbell announced uh, and began to implement his plan, which was, wow, look at that. Here's a relatively small jurisdiction that's at the forefront of, of climate policy and the transition to clean energy. Uh, we best pay attention to it. Well, uh, let's talk about those other provinces. You said this plan is the most comprehensive one you've seen. But beyond that, how does it compare to what the other provinces are doing? Uh, well, well, let's be honest. Right now, um, what we're mostly hearing from from other provinces is um, what they're doing to either delay or or roll back their climate policy. So 
you know, in, in Alberta, unfortunately, uh, you know, Premier Notley has uh, just recently indicated that they're um, not going to be increasing the their carbon tax in line with the the schedule that the the federal government has has laid out for increasing the carbon tax. They're not going to have the emissions cap from the oil sand sector that was promised as part of their plan in place before the next provincial election in Alberta next May. In Ontario, Doug Ford scrapped the cap and trade system, rolled back the various programs supporting energy efficiency and electric vehicles. So the provincial landscape in in Canada has been relatively bleak. So in that regard, BC really stands out as, you know, one of the few provinces that's still not only making progress, but actually increasing uh, ambition. So that's very positive. And then we have some other provinces that are, uh, you know, kind of plugging away, continuing to make progress. Quebec has always been a, a real leader as well. And we don't hear enough about it in part because obviously most of, of what comes out of, of Quebec is in, in French, but they've really continued, even with the swing to a, a more right-leaning government in Quebec, um, they're really doubling down on on their climate policy as well, which is, is positive to see. But, you know, overall, I would say that you know, we, we've lost the momentum that we had a few years back uh, for positive progressive climate policy at the, the provincial level. And it's it's one of the reasons why the federal government is now struggling somewhat with with implementing their plan, because they're running into a lot of opposition and, and roadblocks from from premiers like Doug Ford and, and Scott Moe. Well, I don't want to leave it on a depressing note like that. So maybe my last question that I have, and maybe Scott has another one after this, is... You talked a bit about how BC can kind of market itself on this as the leader on these files. Is that just a sort of theoretical market or will we be actually able to leverage this economically to say sell better technologies, put out the ideas that work here, both just for the better of the planet, but also for the better of the BC economy? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, with a, a greater focus when it comes to market development and, and trade, really focusing on the, 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 the capacity of the knowledge economy in British Columbia and clean technology, both hardware and software, we're seeing so much growth uh, there, but also when it comes to producing resources. So whether we're talking about mining copper or, uh, you know, smelting aluminum uh, in northern B.C., when we can do that by plugging into electricity, we can produce some of the lowest carbon metals and minerals uh, in the world. And we are beginning to see some market differentiation where we've got uh, companies like Toyota or Apple that are actually willing to pay a premium for low carbon aluminum for their products. So uh, hopefully the market is going to continue to trend in that direction. And if so, BC will be very well positioned. And it's something that uh, the government of BC can encourage in the marketplace. And so, you know, that's good for the economy. That creates some real potential for BC. But I think also really important to to make note of how beneficial this can be from from British Columbians from uh, an affordability perspective. And, you know, I, I think oftentimes people thought about things like more efficient homes or electric cars as, you know, these green alternatives that are good for the environment. But I think we need to shift our thinking and actually just think of them as upgrades that we can make and upgrades that are going to enhance comfort, they're going to enhance quality of life, and they're actually going to, to deliver savings uh, when it comes to our, our energy and our fuel bills. And in a province where a lot of people are, are really counting their pennies and thinking about that, I think um, that has a lot to offer and is really going to contribute towards the durability of this plan. It's not just about 
counting the tons of greenhouse gas emissions that will be reduced. It's also going to be about counting the dollars that consumers can save. Okay, well then, uh, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and Clean Energy Canada? Yeah, you can check us out at cleanenergycanada.org. Um, and we also have a, a weekly uh, newsletter, the Clean Energy Review, that comes out every Monday. Ten stories from across Canada and around the world exploring what's happening in, in clean energy and, and climate change. Um, always a great read. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time this evening. Thank you, guys. Well, moving on to our third segment, Huawei or the Highway. This is a really weird story that I don't even really know where to start with. I guess it kind of just starts with Canada arresting this woman, Meng Wangzhu, as she is changing planes at YVR, which is what makes it a BC story as well. I think she was going from China through Vancouver to Mexico, but there's a warrant out for her arrest from the US government. It wasn't really clear what for at first. I think it's related to some of the trade disputes the US is having with China, but also they think, or they are claiming... The the official reason is for fraud, specifically relating to filing misleading statements towards uh, with U.S. banks regarding a business that is a subsidiary of Huawei that was doing business with Iran in contravention of the U.S. sanctions and because she then allegedly lied to a U.S. bank so that her company could do business with that bank, that is then fraud against that bank, which is a crime in the U.S., importantly would be a crime in canada hence we can extradite on that so she gets arrested one of the few corporate executives i think has ever been arrested in canada i won't go to you know the cross for that statement but it is rare for us to arrest corporate executives this is something i think canada land really stuck on and i think the argument they were going for was we shouldn't have arrested her well there's multiple reasons we probably shouldn't have arrested her but I'm more of the opinion, why not arrest all the corporate executives, or at least like all the obviously evil ones, like TD Bank, who's ripped people off, uh, Loblaws, who has defrauded us of our bread by fixing prices. But let's get back to Huawei and all the evil things they do. She gets put in jail, like actual jail in Vancouver, gets released 10 days later on a $10 million bail, comes out that she has some, like, one or two homes in Vancouver, of course, because, you know, every business executive needs a spare home in Vancouver. It gets broken into while she's in jail, which some people I think on Twitter pointed out that when the media posts pictures of her home, like the address and says the homeowner is under arrest is kind of a signal to crooks that it's an easy target. Yeah, probably not a great move in that respect. So she gets out on bail anyway. I guess is still in town waiting the extradition hearings. And it was quite a contentious bail hearing from what I gather too. Anytime you have someone who's putting up $10 million and you're like, are they a flight risk? I would say yes, but I guess she's not. Oh, $10 million isn't necessarily an indication. The, no. I think it largely... I just mean she has enough money to yeah. fly away if she wants. Meanwhile, over in China, they got increasingly pissed off at us. I think the local media there are describing it somewhere between a human rights abuse... It's a little rich coming from China. Yeah. Well, they're claiming we're hypocrites, as they will do. And, I mean, there are real human rights abuses, but putting a millionaire, billionaire, in jail, not a human rights abuse. But China responds by detaining a former diplomat of 
Canada's Michael Kovrig and an entrepreneur, Michael Spavor, on suspicion of endangering national security. BC was in the midst of a trade mission where we had people going there to talk about trading lumber with China, but we decided to recall our provincial jobs minister, Bruce Ralston, early, though some business leaders stayed there to try to continue some productive talks, but things seemed tense. And it kind of all comes back to Canada essentially is doing like the US dirty work here and somehow accidentally, intentionally put ourselves in the middle of the Trump-China trade war, which feels like a dumb place to be. Well, the thing is, like, if there's all indications, or at least more or less, that this, you know, it was a legitimate extradition request. And, you know, we, we do have an extradition treaty with the U.S. And, you know, we want to be able to get our criminals back from the U.S. to prosecute them here. So, you know, there, there are pretty valid reasons to go along with what appears to be a valid request. And the only... I mean, there's political thoughts around, you know, where do we want to position ourselves relative to China? But at the same time, we shouldn't just have a, well, we're not going to arrest someone who may have committed a criminal act just because the Chinese government likes them either. Now, where this does get complicated is earlier this week, I think yesterday, day before, Trump had said something about how this arrest should maybe be used as a bargaining chip in their trade dispute, which is just so great that we're now caught in the middle of. But it, interestingly, might also be an out if Canada is looking to do... I mean, it would annoy the states for sure, but there's a decent chance now that a judge is going to rule this was politically motivated. Or at least that's what their uh, her lawyer will definitely be arguing. And there's, I think, a now a case for it when the President of the United States says, yeah, we should be... Uh, using this case for political purposes. In the middle of this, you also have that Huawei is not just a big tech company that happens to be based in China, but seems to be very tied to both China's new geopolitical strategy, as well as deeply connected to Communist Party members and like people in the government. Yeah, and a bunch of allied countries won't use Huawei products. In Turns whole... out all of the Five Eyes except us. Which is something we really should get around to fixing. So the Five Eyes, as a reminder, are the... US, us, Britain, New Zealand, and Australia are the Five Eyes. So between those five countries, you have the major sharing of intelligence and spy information. And national security is deeply entwined between those five countries. So if there's a weak link, it affects the ability of all five of those countries to be secure. Four of those countries have said Huawei cannot build any critical infrastructure. Meanwhile, in Canada, we're trying to build our 5G network, the successor to the 4G slash LTE network that I'm on on my phone, and it's brilliant, but this will be even more brilliant. Huawei is building that, which means that possibly if you want to get into dark conspiracies and fear-mongering, but not that unrealistic, the Chinese government could have control over Canada's entire telecom network, meaning they could or at least, on or, off or at or least there may be a backdoor. And like, there's been reports out of the U.S. of NS of the NSA trying to get backdoors into certain tech products. So like, it's it's not out of the question, but at the very least, that question should be enough that we put in some pretty firm limits on what governments are willing to do with Huawei. 
So I have no clue how Canada extracts itself from this debate because we've kind of inserted ourselves right between the two biggest economies in the world and the two biggest armies in the world, I would suspect. And neither of them see us as a serious threat or anything, really. I mean, previous U.S. presidents, I think, had some respect for Canada. Trump, I can't imagine, does. Oh, I don't think he does at all. But, you know, d given the choice between the U.S., who's admittedly going through a bit of a rough patch right now. I've seen better days. Yes. And China, I, I'd much rather we side with the U.S. on this one if we're looking at purely politically. Now, ideally, this becomes a decision of a judge and we can at least take a, you know, not have to make this as much of a political issue. Hopefully. <laughs> I believe, although I believe the minister still has to sign off on it, so be uh, Jody Raywood Wilson's to have that fun decision. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot else out there on this, but it's just baffling to me every level of this. I mean, it also gins up just a bunch of the generic anti-Chinese sentiment that's latent in Vancouver. Oh yeah, that's really gotten ramped up. It in also the wake like of this. connects to I don't know the anti-elite sentiments. It connects to anti-Trump sentiments, if you want. Why are we doing his dirty work? It's just nothing about this story is really good for Canada. In a way, we actually did fuck up by doing our job and arresting this person like we said we would. It's not to say I'm advocating for not arresting people who are, I don't know, considered alleged, alleged criminals. Alleged is the word. I just don't want this to be the thing that ends Canada. That's not going to end Canada. But things might get rocky for a bit. This, just don't let this be our Archduke Ferdinand situation. On that note, we're going to move on to Twit Takes. So the Rental Housing Task Force put out uh, their report on their recommendations earlier this week. Overall, there's 23 recommendations they put out. Most of them are kind of fairly minor like procedural tweets or, or like very minor. Very important things like allowing landlords and tenants to email one another. Yes, yeah, stuff like that. But uh, two recommendations in particular is kind of capturing most of the attention. I think rightfully so, because they are the uh, I think most impactful of them. And that's recommendation 9 and 10, which are increase the availability of currently empty strata housing by eliminating a strata corporation's ability to ban owners from renting their own strata units. So basically, stratas can't prevent people from renting out their units, which is seems yes. like a fairly reasonable rule to have yes this is very good we had the speculation tax a few weeks ago say that stratas where there are bans on rentals will be exempt for a couple years but after which they will have to pay and the assumption there is that strata corporations would repeal bylaws that prevent more than x units or ban rentals entirely uh, the strata we're in right now this condo i think there are allowed to be five rentals unless you are like one of the first people in who gets grandfathered in to have a rental as long as you continue it to be a rental but it means if i move out of this unit my in-laws that own it can't rent it out because the quota is met for the building and that would mean they get hit by empty homes tax they get hit by speculation tax because they live in alberta i think i'm very angry angry about that so christmas is going to be fun well, the, the empty homes tax would actually be exempt because that's also one of the rules and that will Hopefully change if this recommendation gets enacted. 
but it just kind of goes to show that there can be a lot of potential rental units that people might even be willing to rent out, but are banned by trivial laws at like the sublocal level. It's the strata. It's, you know, anyone who's been on a strata board or has heard the stories will understand how terrible these things are. They should be great. And I think there are some great ones out there, but there are so many bad stories. Yeah, well, the, the, the more minor the level of power is, the more people power trip. We got a notice around here, uh, because the strata here also works with the neighboring buildings. We got a notice complaining about kids drawing chalk on the sidewalk, because it destroys the character of the buildings. Like, that's the level of petty garbage that comes out of stratas. I'm sorry. So taking their power away, I'm all for it, because they're not using it well in some cases. <laughs> Let kids draw on the sidewalk, for fuck's sakes. Yeah, I, I actually don't think enough attention gets put on just like how much stratas can do completely insane power trippy things. And like, I mean, for a lot of people, it's like a de facto fourth level of government. And like, there's very little oversight in that. And that should probably change. So this one minor rule should hopefully help. Uh, what's recommendation number 10? Recommendation number 10 was to maintain the existing system of rental allowance increases rather than tying it to the unit, which is something uh, some people have been pushing for. And I think in this case it was rightly rejected, but it's definitely has, I think, been one of the things that pe people were really keeping an eye out for on this report. So this is sometimes called vacancy control and it's called a few other things the vacancy control makes me think they're not going to allow the unit to be vacant yeah. which i mean with our really low rental vacancy rates generally not a problem i've never totally figured out that phrasing but someone can explain that on twitter for us or wherever else the idea is that rather than allowing rents to jump by any amount when someone moves out and someone else moves in the rent control is applied to the unit so right now if i live in a place and am renting from someone they can only raise by whatever the province says they can every year. I uh, believe it's inflation now. But this would say when I move out, they still can't raise that rent because it's a unit that shouldn't change other than the fact the market jumps very disproportionately. And this would be a way to bring the massive jumps in rent down. And the landlords, on the other hand, developers argued strongly that this would discourage building new supply. It might encourage some owners to take supply off the market and other concerns like that there's a and there is a lot of problems with rent controls and you know they in a lot of ways they act as a transfer wealth from the future renters to the current renters because it does kind of push up market rents elsewhere um like when a new building comes online or all that they'll have to be hired to offset all the bad stuff or there just won't be new buildings like it, it actually can be quite a problem and you know the BC's kind of struck an okay balance between not letting things go completely like up and down with the markets while also avoiding some of the worst aspects of rent control. And I think they're rightly cautious about moving in a direction that would exacerbate a lot of the structural challenges with getting enough rentals onto the market. And like we have a really low vacancy rate and we do need more uh, rentals and you know a anything that disincentivizes that when it's already such an uphill battle just to make the basic um, economics work out for even a market rental is yeah I think it's the right call on their part yeah and I dug 
a little more into this section to see what the task force's thinking was. And I think it also came around the fact that there are 22 other recommendations, particularly number one, which is just stop renovations. And we can come back to that. But all of these other recommendations taken into account, plus they mentioned that they weren't tasked with looking at supply at all, but they know that the province is working on that. They've announced a bunch of temporary modular homes and affordable housing projects. And municipalities are also starting to shift up both non-market housing as well as efforts to increase market housing. And between all of that, they say, maybe we won't need this. And that's kind of the hope. Yeah. And like a lot of it too is that like it can't have bad effects. And like it's BC has a massive deficit in terms of the number of rental houses that need to be built. Within the last couple of years, I think Surrey opened its first rental building in something like 20 years. Twitlam's building its first one in 40 years. There are entire areas of the province where there has just been like no new purpose-built rentals built. And, you know, if you kind of kill that industry and like that kind of happened in Ontario when they changed their rent control uh, rules is that a lot of buildings shifted from rental to condo. And, you know, it would make a lot of the problems here worse. I think if they'd gone for this recommendation or if they recommended what a lot of the kind of tenant advocates groups were pushing for. Well, and they point out that a lot of people called for that. A lot of renters, a lot of individuals, and it shows how organized people are starting to get, which is an encouraging sign. The other thing a lot of people called for was this end to rent evictions. And that was the number one recommendation. And even recommendations two and three basically just follow from that. And, you know, we saw Vancouver City Council this last week vote unanimously with a Gene Swanson motion along the same lines to end rent evictions and call for more support to help the city do that. You know, rent evictions, the idea that, oh, Scott, sorry, I, I need you to move out of your apartment so we can renovate it. And actually, you can't come back. And actually, we're going to double the rent while you're gone. And it's a way to just essentially raise rents when you otherwise can't just kick someone out of their house. So it gives the person who's renting there, you can force them out to renovate it, but you have to give them a rent at the same rate or the same rate plus a minor modifier to take into account the changes made. Yeah, so you, can't just... you have to do like major structural repairs. You do sometimes need to have the rent of it to actually pay for that. Yeah. Or I'm sure if you put in like granite countertops, in-floor heating and all the like, you change it from like a basic apartment to like a luxury apartment, you can say, well, actually, it's not a full yeah, but like, increase, uh, but you can do... Like the luxury housing features, it's like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. That's like, wait, if you work amortize that out over the cost like the life of the unit it really shouldn't do that much to shift it around it's and like the reason you see a lot of like new quote-unquote luxury stuff coming online is more the fact that the market is kind of so constrained that well you you know that's just what you can get because there just aren't enough units out there that the price will actually just naturally lower because there's a bunch of available units right and so it remains to be seen how much of this gets picked up by the provincial government, given that Vancouver from the NPA to COPE have supported a end to rent evictions. Now, it's slightly watered down from Gene's original, but it's still a sign that this isn't a practice that has a lot of sympathy among anyone. It might be something the government picks up. 
how many of the rest of these go through. Like I said, are they going to let landlords and tenants use email? <laughs> Remains to be seen. I, I think that one is a reasonable chance of going ahead. Yeah. But uh, yeah, some of the more contentious ones, I think we'll have to see. I, I wouldn't surprise me if the Strata one gets a certain amount of pushback. Well, let's move to Andrew Weaver, because he has been doing the circuits of end-of-year media interviews. And as Andrew Weaver is wont to do, he went off and said something that was probably unscripted and probably surprised many in his own caucus and party, as he told Radio NL and Shane Woodford's show, which is another BC Politics podcast you can check out inside BC Poly. He told them, you know what, we've actually accomplished many of the things in the confidence and supply agreement, which I've think I've mentioned before, maybe it's time to renegotiate with the NDP. Maybe I'll come back with some new demands and maybe they have some new things they want to add. And maybe we'll just renegotiate this thing that was supposed to last until 2021, which I'm sure inspired a ton of confidence from. Oh, yeah. The, the NDP must be thrilled to hear that. Yeah, like, I can kind of see the point of like, okay, a lot of the confidence and supply agreement has gone forward or at least is underway. Yeah. Like it started, childcare started, the climate plan is now in place and started, and these things need to be seen through. But what else do you want to do is kind of the outstanding yeah, question. The, 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 yeah, there's the the net step is the, uh, yeah, like they don't let total finance, lobbying reform. Well, this week they checked off the climate action one. There's, let me redress MSP premiums. Like, if yeah, if you look through it, there's actually quite a few that are fairly well aligned. So I can kind of see that point, but like at the same time, the, yeah, that thing that kind of stops us from going to an election and bringing down the government, that's maybe not the sort of thing you just kind of on a whim say, yeah, let's revisit that. Yeah. So it, it, it gets complicated. Like, and, and you don't just muse about it on the radio. You go to your partner and maybe say, hey, here are some other things we're thinking of. This really seems like the conver the sort of conversation that should have been happening behind the scenes where you know the okay we're coming up you know on the halfway point we've got a lot of stuff done what next you know let's hash this out and this now has me wondering is this like idle you know speculation on um weaver's part about what he'd like to see next or is this one of those things where you know maybe they've had that conversation and got stuck on something so it's now maybe getting a little public like you know it's hard to say but you know it's unusual and you know weaver's not a particularly seasoned politician so that might explain this but like it's that also makes it hard to read in what the actual behind the scenes um might or might not be i know he suggested the ndp is looking for some labor review stuff and what the ndp famously wants is to change how car checks are done and union certifications so that you don't need to have a vote if you get enough people to just sign union cards. It's two different ways to certify a union, and there are arguments for both. The NDP is sort of offside where the BC Liberals and Greens are, where they tend to be more aligned. But it sounded like Andrew Weaver is willing to compromise his position on that if he can get something else, but he didn't really hint at what he wanted. But honestly, I don't think he needs to be talking about the CASA agreement when he could just be talking about the throne speech in the spring and he could just say you know i'm working 
hard to make sure green priorities are in this throne speech so that we can support it and keep this government going. Done. Because that's where his leverage is right now. And we'll know the results of the electoral reform referendum in theory by the end of next week. And even if PR fails, it's still probably in Weaver's interest to keep this government going. Yeah, it's unlikely he's going to be in quite the same position. I, I, I think it's relatively likely that the Greens hold the three seats they have in the next election, but the legislative math might not work out in quite the way that leaves him holding the balance of power the way he does now. And in that case, yeah, you might as well try and push this four years as hard as you can, because if you don't get that electoral reform... Uh, you know, this might be your, you know, bid shot for a generation to get the dream priorities put into legislation. And finally, a unexpected delay may actually hamper the Trudeau government's ability to get some more bills through in the spring, as it turns out the new Senate chambers don't work. So center block where the House of Commons and Senate meet is being renovated thoroughly so number one so the building doesn't fall down but also so they can have modern technology like video cameras in the senate chambers so we can actually see senators because people actually care what they're doing now since they tend to disagree with the government more and then ultimately cave it turns out but so they have temporary housing essentially set up for senators and the house of commons and there's a new story out today that the temporary senate didn't take all aspects of acoustic design and engineering into account. And it is so perfect that if you stand outside the doors of the Senate, I assume with the doors closed, but maybe with them open, the article wasn't clear. But in either case, and you just talk there, everyone in the chamber can hear you to a point where it's distracting. So CBC talks about how scrums with reporters, security screenings, and even private conversations can be heard clearly on the floor and that could be distracting for members of the upper house who are trying to do their job of passing bills <laughs> yeah uh for sure and that now i'm just trying to imagine the pranks that some people will inevitably try and pull with that so in the meantime they've decided to delay moving into the senate until february to try and get this sorted out i should also mention trudeau appointed four more senators this week meaning the senate is full for the first time in a decade because there was the start when of the Harper era when he didn't want to appoint people because he wanted them to be elected. And then there was a big rush when he realized he couldn't get bills through. And then he kind of gave up appointing senators toward the end. Yeah, I think it was largely a result of the uh, Senate expenses scandal and everything and him just not wanting the words conservative and senators uh, in, in, you know, media or anything of course like right near the end there started to be pieces coming out about okay so what happens if we don't have enough senators to achieve quorum and now we have 49 of the hundred and some odd senators being appointed by trudeau which means an overwhelming majority of senators are part of the independent senator group which is just the group of senators that trudeau kicked out of the liberal caucus and random other ones who are now doing whatever they want and so the Senate has now been lobbied more than ever in history, which is going to be an interesting experiment for our democracy. And we'll see where that goes. But at least they won't hear you when you're talking outside the chambers. 
And that has been Plidros. Find lists to everything we talked about at plidros.ca. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to subscribe and let us know what you think. Support the show and get exclusive access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening.